This is Genesis 4, chapter 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first, or the fruit of the ground, rather. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must overrule it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahuyael, and Mahuyael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at the time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
This is God's word, and let's us pray, ask for his help, and then begin studying with the time that we have. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have together with each other and with you and with our Bibles. Lord, would you open to us things we've perhaps yet to think through, or would you open to us things hidden where we are familiar? All of this to make us more like you, less like ourselves. And, Lord, to take full advantage of our time at your feet. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, I, I, wish, uh, I wish this a lot, but uh, I wish I had uh, a positive introduction for what follows uh, the three installments we spent in Genesis 3, which was bad, worse, and worser. Uh, this is worser still. I know that's not a word, but my kids use it. I used it before I knew it was a bad word, and it always makes people laugh. So maybe that's the positive part of what's going to be another negative message. But then again, there are things in this passage that are good, and there are things that serve as a glimmer of hope for what's to come. But this is, after all, a further descent from what took place in the garden when man and woman sinned against their creator. Uh, The rapid decline seen in the next several chapters involving human arrogance, brutality, can't very well be whitewashed. Uh, The story begins with Adam and Eve. They start their family with two sons, Cain, a crop farmer, Abel, a shepherd. But by the time we're in verse 9, Cain has killed his brother Abel. And seems to have little, if no, remorse for it. That's far different than what we read in chapter 3. Both are sin. But in the way that we evaluate human behavior, much worse is the second. Now, as sin grows in ambition and audacity, we studied this last week, it increasingly harms, uh, in this case, other people. Uh, in in Genesis three, you got Adam and Eve. Now they've they've harmed each other in a way, but it seems that the damage is limited to them as the only two human beings on the planet. This time, we're going to see that it affects all sorts of people. Um, at Genesis three, you could make the case, I suppose, that uh, sin is a, a religious category. Because the world over, not too many people are going to get too upset for people eating fruit off a fruit tree. That seems to be uh, something that the God of this religion, if we're looking at it from a distance and we're not necessarily believers, imposed on the people that he supposedly created. So that's their thing, that's their religion. In this case, we're talking about an ethical category. One man killing another man or one man abusing as many people as he can abuse because he's 77 times worse than the guy who was seven times worse, who was the son of the first guy who was a sinner. So it's it's rolling downhill, and it seems to be getting bigger and speeding up. Sin is no longer just a religious category. It's an ethical category. And by the time we get to the end, after disregarding God and His Word, have led to disregarding other human beings made in His image, By the end of the chapter, we could probably assign a political category. After the generations have come and gone, deteriorating even further until we meet the Bible's first thug, 
That would be Lamech, the man who sings songs to his wife about killing people. Wives, excuse me. Um, An inordinate lust for personal vengeance, massive view of his own self-worth, seemingly total disregard for the lives of others. Lamech unites the spirit of autonomy we saw in chapter 3 with an ethic of violence and justifies the whole thing. Makes good sense to him. So, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Lamech's a few verses later. The way that this chapter is structured, it's basically a genealogy of Adam through his son Cain. Seth is mentioned at the end, and we'll see Seth's line in the next chapter, but this is from Adam through not Abel. Abel's murdered Cain and his descendants. Lamech is one of those. Um, But that's verses 17 through 26. There's a detailed narrative about Abel's murder in verses 3 through 16. So let's look at 3 through 16, what happened between these two brothers, and then we'll look at the rest of the genealogy, including Seth at the end, all the way through verse 26. The opening phrase um, makes use of the broad term, no. Adam knew his wife. Now that word is about as generic as a Bible word that you'll find in the Bible. It can be used in a lot of ways, but in the Old Testament, it's often used euphemistically for an act that usually or often results in childbearing. I think those of us who knows what that means, great. And if you don't know what it means, ask somebody else. <laughs> we won't talk about it here. We're going to hear it twice. But in this case, it did result in bearing children, two of them. Um, then goes on to give us some, some, some more details What's after that first phrase is very difficult to understand. What Eve said about, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's the ESV translation. Your translation may vary quite a bit. Because of those Hebrew words, again, they can be used in different ways. And uh, Hebrew can be rough in that it doesn't have connectives and vowels like we expect to be written out. Uh, in, in comparison with English, it can almost look like shorthand. And there's just no way to nail down exactly what she means. The, the two greatest options here are one, sounds like what the ESV is saying. She's happy and gives thanks to the Lord for birthing a child. But there's also a case that she is saying, I have done what God has done. He created a man, so have I. Now, that doesn't seem to be uh, the favorite among most people because it puts Eve still in a disjointed relationship with the Lord. And then the second one at the end sounds a lot better. Hey, he's appointed that I have a replacement for the one son that my other son killed. Either way, it's, it's not what you write in the guts of a greeting card, is it? Uh, we've got problems from one end of the spectrum to the other, and Eve, we'll come back to this later, is probably the one that understands the worst of humanity before anyone else does. These are her children. But what it means, we can't exactly understand, but it doesn't seem that the whole chapter hangs on it either. So we just keep moving to more of the details. Uh, If we start reading halfway through verse 2, now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, crops. 
Abel also brought forth the firstborn of his flock, that's animals, and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel. Cain had no regard. Cain gets very angry. His face falls. So these verses make up the first scene of the narrative that's stuck in the middle of the genealogy. Uh, there's a subtle detail in here, though, if you're looking at it in verse 3 and then in verse 4. Abel brings firstlings, uh, the firstborn there in ESV, but firstlings would be the technical category of uh, firstborn of those animals that are being reproduced and form the cattle or the herds that he keeps. And Cain brought neither firstlings or first fruits. Later in Scripture, we hear about first fruits too. That'd be like the first of your harvest, or the better part of it. So even though the law of Moses had yet to be written, and it'd be a long time before it is, we learn things in that as to what the Lord wants out of His people when they worship Him, His specific people that are His people and they, uh, He is their God. If we're kind of trying to color up this with what we know later downstream, um, the firstborn of your flocks were always to be the Lord's. Either they could be sacrificed or redeemed. So you could kind of buy them back. And, and that will, will also color up what we see with what Jesus does. It's part of a substitution, part of atonement, part of a, a blood sacrifice. It, it's, a, it's a very rich uh, culture that we're going to see built around these concepts. But it doesn't look as if Cain is working in that avenue at all. It just says he brings some of his crops. Now, we wish we had more to kind of put a finer point on it. This is why God didn't like it or did like it. But that's about all the hint we're going to get. Uh, also, it mentions the fat portions. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time and money figuring out how to make cows as fat as we can before we cut them up into steaks. There's a reason for that. It makes it better. And in the old world, the best part of the animals that we didn't have, you know, feedlots to grain finish them with, I guess. Uh, whatever fat they had was good. It was important for their diet. Olive oil was another source of it. But that was the Lord's. And it says that, that Abel puts that in there as well. So it's clear that Abel's giving his best, but it's not clear at all that, that Cain has done the same. So Cain's angry. Um, because of God's disapproval. We don't know how Cain and Abel knew of God's approval or disapproval. Some say fire came down and burned up one of them and didn't fall down and burn up the other one. That's total speculation. We just don't have that. We need to see that in other passages. But uh, Moses doesn't tell us when he writes Genesis as to how exactly it happened. And it's, uh, it's kind of hard to know other than to just... Keep reading and see what happens. Cain's very angry, not just angry. And any time in the Old Testament where you see angry with very in front of it, usually it not only indicates intense emotional anguish, but it also seems to be a prelude for some homicidal act. Somebody's going to die if you've got somebody who's very angry. And that's what happens here. Um, so if we're trying to figure out... Um, it's only as far as we can go. We've got options is to try to understand, okay, if, 
even knowing what we do with the sacrificial system, and nothing as to how he communicated to these men. We just know one got the message and he's mad about it. Um, could it be that God prefers shepherds to gardeners? I do remember thinking one time, you know, most gardeners I know are nice people. And most cowboys can be rough. These are switched. Um, I don't know if that has anything to do other than just my brain runs off um, when it should concentrate. Um, is it or possibly that sacrificing an animal is better than sacrificing a vegetable? Could one be worth more than the other? Now, at grocery prices these days, who knows? If there's little of it, you're going to pay a lot for it. But I think that, uh, let's see, let's pick one. Wasabi root. That's made out of gold, the real stuff. You could have a whole pile of probably that Wagyu stuff for a wheelbarrow full of wasabi root. Now, truffles aren't a vegetable or an animal, but they're very expensive. You didn't offer truffles. I don't, I don't, I've never even had a truffle. I just know they're very expensive, and they use them a lot on those shows where they're trying to tell you, we spent a lot to make this show. Make you hungry. Go buy some food somewhere. Um, I don't think that's it either. Or is it that God's motives are so mystical that his choice is likely to be a surprise? We don't know and we shouldn't even try to understand. I don't think it's that. What about Hebrews 11 where it says that, uh, how did it go? Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So was it the sacrifice or was it the motive? It's hard to say. Most commentators and scholars, and, and we go through that just to think, here's what most of them would say, and half of them would say we don't know, is it's simply the difference in attitude of worship. Cain offers something, Abel offers his best. That seems to be the only quantifiable difference we see between the two of them. So God asks Cain, after he's angry that whatever he brought didn't please the Lord that his face is fallen. And not unlike the snake's opening question, uh, God says, what's wrong, basically? It's kind of the way the snake entered with, with, with Eve. So what's going on here? The snake wanted to leave, lead Eve into sin. We know that. It seems clear that what God wanted to lead Cain to was a change of heart. That seems to be obvious enough. So we're on the same pattern we looked at last week. Um, the devil's dealings with man is always deception and separation where with God and man it's always uh, forgiveness and grace truth truth versus the lie that, that's the big banner you could put them under so is there not forgiveness if you do well that, that's what God says so we know he's talking about a changed heart snake lied God tells the truth Truth is hard to hear. Uh, the snake has been missing you know, since it was found out that his lie was a noble lie. Verse 8 is very short and to the point. A lot of times the Bible wastes no time getting to the, the height of the drama. The scene involves only Cain and Abel. The word brothers used twice, drawing double attention to their relationship. And then verses 9 through 14, another scene where it's only Cain and God after the murder of Cain's brother. 
Now, this happened in verse 6 and 7. It's Cain and God talking. But it's just God talking, and we read of no response from Cain. But when we get here, verses 9 through 14, Cain gets to talk. And if we thought, well, Cain has an attitude problem so far, we're going to learn that it seems uh, quite terminal. When Adam was questioned in the garden, previous chapter, uh, he at least told the truth. Maybe not all the truth, but what have you done? She gave it to me and I ate it. He didn't try to lie about the fact that he ate it. But with Cain, he seems to lie perhaps with a straight face. Where is your brother? I don't know. And then, am I my brother's keeper? Now, the last part, and uh, I know some of you like little factoids and, uh, you know, little details. That, as far as a literary device, could be called a witticism. Ever heard somebody has, you know, a sharp wit? You know, sometimes you like being around them because it's funny. Sometimes you hate being around them because it's not. But they have something to say about everything. Where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, it's a witticism probably because that's what his brother was. He was a keeper of sheep. You could say, am I my brother's shepherd? Maybe that is part of his still being angry. Maybe he thinks it was the sacrificed lamb or whatever it was that he liked and he didn't like what he did. But either way, he's overstating his responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? Because nowhere in the Bible does it say we're supposed to keep each other. Now, it does say in the law that if you've got a problem, it's your family that helps you first. But I don't think that's saying we should keep an eye on each other all the time. So he's, he's exaggeratingly overstating his responsibility in order to flat out deny it. No, I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't know where he is. Though he does know where he is. He's dead. So God's not amused, and Cain is much more hardened than his father. It, it, it's obvious that the relationship that God had with Adam is not the relationship God has with Cain. So you see a coarsening or a hardening of the heart and the affections toward God on a uh, speaking basis. So um, by the time we get... A verse further, um, and like the question put forward to his parents, God, after this exchange, asks, What is this that you have done to introduce the statement, Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground? Now, what does that mean? Because we've got all kinds of literary things going here. Blood doesn't talk, uh, nor does the ground but it seems that there's something sacred about the blood and there's something uh, totally wrong about it being spilled on the ground from which man was created, perhaps. So, um, again, it's going to be a long time before the law of Moses is written and somewhere in Leviticus, in talking about the sacrificial system, we learn that life is in the blood and that the Jews are not to ever eat it or to drink it. Uh, they're to use it in sacrifice, to sprinkle it as, as a form of atonement, signifying the sacrificed life that covers for the sins. 
but even medically, we, we don't have an argument with that. If, if you've got a problem with your blood, you've got a problem. Too many red blood cells, not enough red blood cells, white blood cells, not enough iron, uh, not enough pressure, uh, too much pressure. Your blood is your life. You don't want an injury where you lose too much of it. So the idea here is that this is the height of wrong, that the life of Abel is spilled on the ground uh, by his, his brother Cain. And it seems as if the ground is bemoaning the injustice. And then in verse 11, the, the words, and now, you see that? Um, that introduces the consequences. Usually that's the way these things work. And now, here it comes, you are cursed from the ground. Now that, that's new because in, in Genesis 3 in the garden, God had cursed the ground but he hadn't cursed Adam or Eve. He cursed the snake and made him crawl on the ground. But no human being has been cursed directly yet. But now Cain is cursed like the ground or maybe worse. He loses just about everything. He's cut off from his family, his, his vocation, his livelihood. He must wander around in the wilderness. Uh, verse 12 is where, where we see it. If you look again. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. With Adam, it's going to be hard. With you, it's not even going to work. Uh, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So that means he's not near his family or anybody he knows. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Ever had anybody say that? Usually it's right after the, You're grounded. You can't do that. I can't. You know, I don't know how homes work anymore. I only know the way it worked when I was raised. Usually we tend to raise our children similarly with adjustments that we thought were too much or too little, right? Time has its evolution in the way those things work. But there has to be something to say for authority structures where disciplinary action is reasonable, helpful, uh, right, and moral, and Usually, the one on the other side of it, it's not fair. That's a lie. I'm not guilty. Whether they are or whether they're not, what's the saying? No one's guilty in prison, right? They're all innocent. Um, he says in verse 14, basically regurgitating everything that was said and accurately. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, can't even work anymore, and from your face I shall be hidden shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. That's what he's really worried about. So let's, let's add some blocks together. Not only does disregarding God and his word lead to disregarding other human beings, this is new to chapter 4, but alienation that results, alienation from God leads to alienation with others. And this is on God's terms. We'll see how it works with man's terms here in a moment. Even worse, it leads to the fear of others. Whoever finds me will kill me. I've broken ties with the Lord. Now I'm worried about my ties with anyone else. He's in a bad spot. Now here's some more things we don't know. We don't know precisely what it means for whoever were to kill Cain to be punished sevenfold. Does that mean seven people die? Or does that mean that the curse follows for seven generations? 
Uh, we could speculate. It wouldn't do us any good. It's not clear. We just know whatever it is, it's seven times worse. Nor do we know what the mark was exactly. Now, was it a tattoo uh, on his forehead? All the little pictures I looked, like, looked at in Sunday school as a kid, it was a tattoo on his forehead. Because if you're drawing pictures for kids in Sunday school, you have to be able to see it. You can't just talk about something that no one would know. It's got to be obvious to everybody, right? I even read one commentator who surmised it was a dog to protect him. I, don't, I, I, I mean, we might as well just guess it. An angry bird that would... Crazy hairstyle. Maybe it was a mohawk. <laughs> Guessing doesn't really do us much good. We just know he was marked and everybody would know when they saw him. Leave this guy alone. He's cursed. He's off limits. If you touch him, it'll be worse. And that kind of makes sense. This man killed another man. You kill the man that killed another man, you're going to have it seven times harder than he did. So... What can we say about what we've said so far, even though we've had to acknowledge there's some details we, we can't know? We know for sure that a story that began with an attempt to draw near to God through sacrifice ends in Cain leaving the Lord's presence and leaving even further from Eden, the garden that his parents were expelled from. I think we can say again, maybe with an underline now, God takes sin seriously. It's a pattern that will never be removed from the biblical record until the sin is eradicated once for all. So back to Adam's genealogy, that little uh, narration in the middle, we've covered that. Go back to the, the uh, genealogy and then on to Lamech and then to Adam and Eve's third son, Seth. How many of you would, uh, if I ask you to raise your hands, would proudly... Uh, admit that you enjoy reading genealogies. It's your favorite part of the Bible. I understand them, and I can pronounce all the names. No, they're tough. And uh, I like watching some people just not even attempt to read through the names because it's... I mean, I, sometimes I have to resort to some of these British folks who read for money and listen to the way they say it just so I can at least attempt to make it sound like I know how to pronounce a name I've never even heard anyone speak before. But... To dismiss them because it's something we don't know or we're not familiar with wouldn't be the best thing. It is Scripture. Um, it's understandable that it's difficult, but there's always room for improvement. We can take a shot. Here, this is one of the genealogies that actually has a little bit of commentary attached to some of the names that are in the list. So without spending the time to reread it again and trying to pronounce those names once more... Um, let me just summarize the specific list of achievements attached to the people in the list. First of all, Cain, the murderer, the wanderer, the marked man, um, builds the first city mentioned in the Bible. So he's not totally a vagabond. Is this in violation of his probation? Again, there's, there's no moral commentary on this. It's just stating the facts as they happened. Uh, and then he names the city after his son. Then a man named Jabel seems to be the father of farming. His descendants live in tents and raised livestock. So they're improving the way uh, 
Abel had gone about it. Now it seems to be somewhat of a profession. They're, they're refining it. Then there's Jubal, Jabel's brother. Not Jubal, the bootlegger in the Andy Griffith show. Um, but Jubal, the father of those who played strings and pipes. That would be the lyre. David mentioned that earlier. Uh, I always thought it was a curious pronouncement of that term. Somebody read it and you're not paying attention. You, you, what did you call me? Um, the lyre. It was a very simple stringed instrument. And the pipe here was some sort of flute. And it seems as though those who kept sheep um, also learned how to play those instruments out in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. Uh, and then you've got Tubal Cain, and maybe Cain is a, is a gloss, or maybe just to keep this guy from the other guy, or who knows. Um, but he forged all kinds of tools and uh, out of bronze and iron, uh, perhaps copper in there as well. That's part of bronze. Um, but then you get to Lamech, back to uh, the thug, as we called him. He stands out among these others. Uh, what he contributes is nowhere near as helpful as what they did. More said about him, though, than the others, and unfortunately, none of it is praiseworthy. He's an example of raw violence, unprovoked, unrestricted, unconflicted violence. Um, basically, the best way I know how to describe this is... Uh, Lamech is the man who took a gun to a knife fight. You've heard you should never take a knife to a gunfight. You're kind of at a disadvantage. No, he went into this fight with an advantage. Man hits him, he kills him for it. And not an older man that's weak and had it coming, but a younger man, he said. And then if we're kind of wondering, okay, well, is this self-defense? Uh, had this guy broken the law and he was, you know, first bounty hunter? Um, when he brags about what was said of Cain, that's seven times. If Cain was a bad man times seven, I'm a bad man times 77. Don't mess with me. I'm making up poems for my wives about how I kill people for next to nothing. That's this guy named Lamech. Um, so his wives must have been proud of their sons for music, husbandry, and metallurgy, but as far as their husband, they may actually have the world's first sociopath on their hands. It's bad. Um, and it looks as if the scriptures are pulling no punches. It's just telling the story as it goes. So if you step back and look at all of it from a distance, we've still got the part about Seth, the third child of Adam and Eve, left. But so far, you've got a snapshot of the birth of civilization as humans began to fill the earth and subdue it. All kinds of improvements are mentioned, new farming methods, technology in the form of blacksmithery. I just like saying that word. Uh, and the arts in the form of musical instruments and those who've learned to play them. So some of it sounds great, but then you've got Lamech and you've got Cain. So it seems you've got good and bad traveling along the same tracks and arriving at about the same time. And there's, there's word pictures you could use to describe this. I saw it. I wrote it down. I liked it. The same axe that chops a tree for shelter crushes a skull for revenge. You could say of chapter 4 of Genesis. Culture and technology provide efficiency, scale, 
refinement to the human capacity for both good and evil. These are improvements. You can do things easier, smarter. But there's good going on and there's bad going on. And both seem to be perhaps on an exponential uh, level because of the use of these new inventions and things. Now, with that said, I always need to make sure we're speaking clearly and covering the bases not to you know, say something by not saying it on purpose. We need to be careful to assume that all forms of expression, we see new forms of expression here, especially the arts. We, we shouldn't assume that they're all strictly neutral and can be used just as easily for good as evil. Some things just seem to be tailor-made for a lot of good or some things seem to be tailor-made for a lot of bad if they get caught in the wrong hands. You know, we're, we're, there's reasons why when talking about nuclear bombs or miracle vaccines and, and those who are in charge of governments ordained by God, that's very useful information to them because you could use the one... What's the constructive use of nuclear technology? Well, power. But you could also ruin the whole world with it in short order. Or the vaccines... Um, you could actually cure a whole generation of people from a deadly disease or withhold it from them or make a lot of money depending on the lay of the land. What, what's opportunistic or what's expedient or what is good and right? So got to be careful because they're not strictly neutral but at the same time we don't want to assume that any of the arts or any of the technologies are inherently good or inherently evil. That is bad, it's always bad, and it'll always be bad. Or that's good, it's always good, and it'll always be good. That's not the case either. We've got to use our brains and our wisdom and our scriptures to, to take one step at a time in each of these directions. Um, to take a note out of what we've studied in the past, uh, a few summers ago with Ecclesiastes, Solomon correctly said there was nothing new under the sun. He'd lived long enough and tried enough things and knew enough history to say it's, it's basically all the same when you, when you look at it all. Though I've tried it all, done it all, it's all the same, it's nothing new. Solomon said that before the internet, before social media, before cell phones. That's a major leap in technological advancement. Can you imagine what Ecclesiastes would be like if Solomon had had the Google? Or if he had been able to just tweet, would the Queen of Sheba had liked it and retweeted his tweets? Probably. Uh, would he have had a whole group of people that hated him? Sure. And if he'd have had all of this in something the size of this right here to put into his pocket... And with alerts, keep him busy all the time. Um, it's hard to say. But I still want to believe there's nothing new under the sun. If, you, if you're going to basically boil it down to the, what's inside us. This hasn't changed us. It's changed the world and the way we do things. But deep down on the inside, we're all still the same. We're all 
made in the image of God, but under the curse of sin. All that we read in these new developments aren't going to change what happened in the garden and are not going to change what's necessary on the cross. That, that, that's what we've got to keep in mind. So my point is we've not figured out since how to save ourselves and with all these new elaborate and efficient means, we can do one of two things with just about all of them. Love and enjoy God forever or destroy ourselves. The choice is still ours. Um, while I was putting this together and trying to finalize things, usually there's a stage where I start cutting stuff out because it's too much. Um, this came to mind, and it was a question I, I was asked for a short period of time, uh, which felt like a long period of time. But I went, I was homeschooled, then went to Word of Life in Florida for a year, and then that gave me uh, three semesters worth of credit at Liberty University. That's where I got my degree before I went to Southeastern. When I came home, um, oh, there were more than a few parents who asked me, should I send my child to Liberty University? Is it a good school? And I guess for a while I just thought they were talking about the education. Yeah, it was good. It's kind of expensive. I'll be paying for it for a while. Uh, but it was a good experience, and I appreciate many of the professors and still talk to them now. But after a while, I started answering what I perceived to be the real question. And that's where I had to just change my answer altogether. Because I think what the parents were asking, is this a safe place to spend my money for an education for my child and them not come back totally different than what I send to them? And perceiving that's what's going on, I just started saying, well, look, it was good for me. But I'm not sure it's good for everybody. I'm not even sure Word of Life is good for everybody because I knew some kids who went to Word of Life don't go to church, don't care about God since. And it's only been a few years. And then if they looked at me kind of funny, I would just say, listen, the academics are great and the professors are good. And there's still some of them that taught my dad that are still there. But if what you're saying is, is there a quality education for this amount of money? Yes. But is there an app, a possibility that your kids could search out other kids who were there for one reason, and that's not to study, to waste their time, your money, get into big trouble, and who knows what else? Sure. Just like they can at home. You can't read their mind. They can't read yours. You're going to have to teach them the best you can. And if you think that they have the character to do that, send them. And if they don't, sit on them and see how that works. But I'm not sure I can wholeheartedly sign my name to this as a guarantee that they'll come back like I did. In some ways, I hope they don't because there's some stuff I know that I didn't know when I went there that I wish I don't know. What I'm trying to say, that's my way of, of, of saying this. Making people more articulate, more capable, more knowledgeable, better equipped enabled, empowered, more healthy, more wealthy, doesn't make them better people. It only makes them better at being what they already are, sinners who need Jesus. You know, Jesus, him through you might do some real good stuff. You alone without him are capable of anything the worst the world has ever seen. And unless you see something you call sin, and identify it also residing in your own heart, you're still a little bit off 
what the Bible's saying about sin. Everybody's got it. Everybody can be Lamech. Though some of us can invent right songs, new tools, new inventions, help society, build cities. All these things are good. They can't be bad. But the point is we're broken and we're going to need that snake crusher to pay for our sins ultimately to get ourselves back to the garden we've all been banished from. Now, the sad part is this problem is devolving and it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, but not without little glimmers of light along the way. We've got the mid-20th century examples, the bloodiest uh, hundred years of history, and it should be noted that mid-century, the whole world would have considered Germany to be the best of what the world has to offer. They're the smartest. They got the best stuff. Who wouldn't want to be just like Germany until they lead the world in genocide? The smart people did that? Yes. And, and, and that's just one century out of those that we have to study in the history books. Um, my father used to say this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you far more than you ever wanted to pay. The Bible teaches us that these technologies and arts are neutral, give or take. But sin is destruction no matter where it's found. Uh, and that's why we sing songs like at Christmas about grace. Far as the curse is found. Those are the major themes even though we got a lot to think about here. In summary, seven generations in Genesis chapter 4, 200 years or so, tracing the development of technology and arts on the one hand, the growth of hatred and violence on the other. Genesis 3 told us about sin separating God and man, husband and wife. Genesis 4 tells us about hatred between siblings, a son's heart harder than the heart of his father's, and the leveraging power of civilization for good or for ill. And then we get to verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, Eve certainly could never forget the murdered and the murderer. Those are her children. But she seems to be crediting the Lord for a third. And that word Lord there, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's all caps, which the ESV translates uh, as Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Later, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So out of this mess, and, and you want to think about it. Out of that whole chapter, who do you go interview if you want to know how bad things really are? Eve. Bury a son, the hand of another son. Watch these things. If she could see down the history, the 200 years, and really we're going to read where people lived a lot longer than that. It's very possible they're all still here. Uh, when you got Cain saying things like, if anybody finds me, they'll kill me. There are people who say, well, it's 
It's just your parents that are left. Well, it says that he was married. Did that happen after he had the tattoo on his head? Who wants to marry the dude with the tattoo on his head? It's probably his wife from before when that happened. They're probably not young boys when this results. We could think in all sorts of directions, but chapter 5, we're going to learn Seth's genealogy. And down the line, there's this fellow named Noah. Noah's going to be the one who perceives the Lord's direction to build an ark when it never even rained before. And he actually, two by two, saves all the animals and his family in a wooden boat. There's a big, massive replica you can go walk through if you're willing to drive a distance. It's a fascinating story, but what is that story? It's a reset. It's grace, but it also amounts to basically uh, an alt-controlled delete on everything that had happened earlier. Sin gets that bad. And then that's not even to speak of Babel afterward. We've got enough to thank the Lord for, enough to ask Him to help us think through. And uh, we'll sing and we'll be on our way. Before that, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for Genesis Thank you for Genesis 4. We thank you for the record of these men, good and bad. And Lord, we ask you to help us look at life, this world, our families, everything in it, through the lens of our situation. We're lost in sin. We need a Savior. You can fix this. We can't fix this ourselves. There's grace in this world right now. There's also evil in this world right now. Lord, give us the wisdom to know how to live our lives right now and prepare ourselves for the future. Lord, there's so much here. You'll have to help us sort through it. You'll have to help us know what to do. Lord, you must lead and we must follow. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus who died in our place so we could be saved. Amen.